Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Eric. I am one of the pastors here, so I want to welcome you. And uh, let's see, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles all around the room. We have some in the back. We have some underneath the chairs. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot yours, you can use it. We have sermon notes uh, on the communion tables around the room, or you can download an app on your smartphone called Uversion and click on Live, and that will bring up the notes as well. So uh, did anybody tell you Happy New Year yet? Okay, well, Happy New Year once again. Yeah. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. And it says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, bringing us through this past year into this new year. And thank you, Father, for never leaving us, never forsaking us, for always being with us. Lord, uh, this morning we pray that we would gain a better understanding of the extravagant love that you have for each one of us, Lord. And if there's anybody here, Lord, who finds themselves far from you, that today they would see it's time to come home. So we thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we ask you to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So we are currently in a five-week series called Prodigal God. Last week was week one. This is week two. And it's based on Jesus' parables in Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bible there and you want to follow along, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 15. Now let me ask, how many of you here have made New Year's resolutions? Anybody? It's, it's amazing. Every service. We had one second service. But every service, just nothing. Why is that? Because we know what's going to happen, right? Yeah. Well, this is typically the time of year when we resolve to change things about our lives for the better into the future. And Jonathan Edwards, who is considered by unbelievers and believers alike as one of the greatest thinkers and philosophers that came out of North America, he's well known for his 70 resolutions. Now, these are not necessarily New Year's resolutions. He probably committed these to paper while he was still a teenager. And so that's kind of amazing. And he did this in order to cultivate his growth in God's grace and in God's power. And he would read and reread those resolutions on a regular basis, weekly or more, to renew his mind and his focus. And uh, it's just an amazing thing. I want to read you just a few of his resolutions. Number one. He wrote, I am resolved to do whatsoever I think most to the glory of God. Number four, resolve never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. Number 23, resolve frequently to take some deliberate action for the glory of God, or if I find it not to be for God's glory, to repute it as a breach of number four. And number 27, Resolve never willfully to omit anything unless the omission is for the glory of God and frequently to examine my omissions. Has anybody made resolutions like this? We probably should, right? Now, as you can see, Jonathan Edwards was consumed with the glory of God. And he also understood that God's joy is intimately connected to his glory that God rejoices when he is glorified. Edwards said that God infinitely values his own glory and finds infinite joy 
in his glory. And so he said that God's joy is greatest where his glory is the greatest. Amazing thoughts. Amazing thoughts. Now let me ask you all a question. Where do you suppose God's glory and therefore his joy is the greatest? Well, in human history, it's in the work of the salvation of sinners. And Edwards writes this. He says, God has greatly glorified himself in the work of creation and providence. All his works praise him, and his glory shines brightly from them all. But as some stars differ from others in glory, so the, so the glory of God shines brighter in some of his works than in others. And amongst all these, work, the work of redemption is like the sun in his strength. The glory of the author is abundantly most resplendent in this work of redemption. So God's glory is greatest in redemption. And therefore, God's joy is greatest in redemption. And so if we are going to live our lives to the glory of God and for His joy, we need to understand and we need to be a part of this work of redemption. And that's really what the parables in Luke chapter 15 are all about. And so last week we looked at the parables of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And we see that all of Luke 15 was spoken as an answer to the accusation of the Pharisees and the scribes uh, when they said in verse 2 that Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them. And verse 1 says that all the tax gatherers and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. And Jesus was making a place for them at his table and he was encouraging them to stay with him and to eat with him. Now, Luke uses this word for receive here six times in his writings. And in Luke 2.25, uh, this is where Simeon was eagerly awaiting the consolation of Israel. In Luke 2.38, Anna the prophetess, she actually spoke to those in the temple who were eagerly awaiting the redemption of Israel. And in Luke 12.36, Jesus said, Be like men who are eagerly awaiting for the master to come home from the wedding feast, and so on. And so, in other words, here, in Luke 15, too, it says that Jesus is not just receiving sinners, but Jesus is looking for them. He's eagerly waiting for their coming. He has an eye out for them. The word receive here sounds passive, but Jesus is not passive here. He's seeking after sinners and tax gatherers, and he wants them to come and to eat with him. And he said plainly in Luke 19.10, he said, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And so Jesus is here doing the work of God in redemption, what glorifies God and what brings him joy. And the Pharisees see this work and they say that he's doing the work of Satan. They are so far from God, they actually attribute his work to Satan. You can't get any further from God than that. And so then Jesus, he attempts to strip away and unmask this self-righteous attitude by showing how far away from God they are, how distant they really are, how they know nothing about God's glory or about God's joy. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, they accuse him. And the rest of this chapter is Jesus' explanation to them of what's really happening when he eats and welcomes sinners. And so we see the first answer in verses 3 through 7 that we looked at last week. His receiving sinners is like a shepherd who finds his sheep, and then he celebrates with all of his friends. And then in his second answer, in verses 8 through 10, his receiving sinners is like a woman who finds her lost coin and she celebrates with all her friends. And in both of these stories, Jesus leaves no doubt about what he means. In verses 7 and 10, he tells the Pharisees that the lost sheep and the lost coin represent lost sinners. And being found represents repentance. And the celebration is what God and all the angels are doing in heaven. 
And at this moment, some get it and some don't. He's saying, I welcome sinners because I am the incarnation of God's love pursuing the lost. I am the shepherd seeking the sheep. I'm the woman that's seeking the coin. And this meal that we're eating together, it's a little bit of what's happening in heaven right now. It's a foretaste of the joy that is going to take place when one sinner turns from their sin and accepts my fellowship. That's the joy of their life. Celebration takes place in heaven. They return home to God, and God is glad. You see, God's not waiting for 10,000 sinners in order to start this party. When one sinner turns from their sin, there is joy and there is celebration in heaven. And that's the point of this entire chapter, the joy of God. And so now we see in verses 11 through 24, Jesus gives the third answer to the Pharisees' accusation. When he receives sinners and he eats with them, he's like a father who finds his lost son, and he celebrates with all of his house. All three parables have this in common, being lost, being found, followed by great joy and a great celebration. And so today, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at the third story, which is the climax of these three stories, which is traditionally known as the prodigal son. Now, the parable of the prodigal son, it has been called the Evangelium in Evangelio, the gospel within the gospel. You can see it up there. Say it with me. The Evangelium in Evangelio, the gospel within the gospel. Because it's as if in Jesus' parable here, there's a microcosm of the cosmic gospel. All of the elements are there. You have a lavish father. You have rebellion. You have repentance. You have a homecoming. And along with the parable of the Good Samaritan, this is no doubt one of the most well-known parables of Jesus in all the world. Ralph Waldo Emerson, he called this the greatest story in the Bible, or out of it. And it was acclaimed by Charles Dickens as the greatest short story ever written. And so that kind of makes you think, what am I missing here? Is there something here that, that maybe I haven't seen before? And their answer is yes, there probably is something that you haven't seen there. Now, we have to remember, why did Jesus teach using parables? In Matthew 13, 13, he said, This is why I speak to them in parables. Those seeing, they do not see. And though hearing, they do not hear or understand. You see, parables were supposed to change the way we see the world and the way we operate. And it was supposed to change our worldview from the inside so that we can see and hear reality correctly. Many religions have tried the same thing using riddles or, or mythic stories. But Jesus here, he is the master storyteller because he alone holds the keys to life and ultimate truth and reality. And parables should make us a little bit uncomfortable if we're really hearing the message of them. If we fit them nicely into our business-as-usual world, then they're really not serving their purpose. Now, Kenneth Bailey, who's an expert in Middle Eastern New Testament studies, he points out that we must remember that Jesus spoke to a Middle Eastern peasant people. Even the educated came from peasantry. And he says that what lies between the lines, what is felt and not spoken, is of deepest significance. What everybody knows is never explained. For example, he says, everyone knows that being polite to your father is much more important than actually obeying him. And then Jesus comes along and he says, no, that's not true. And he tells a story in Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. You see, our Western understanding of the scriptures are conditioned by our culture. And it's like the Japanese Christian artist that paints a portrait of the Madonna and child. And the figures, they look Japanese. They're literally distorted by the community and by the culture. But yet they still convey something meaningful. 
But it's important for us to really understand the story. We have to understand first century Palestine and the peasant people of that particular time. Now, as Paul pointed out last week, there's one important thing that we have to understand here, and that was they were governed by a shame and honor paradigm. Everything related back to what was honorable and what was shameful. And they had a very, very clear, almost a subconscious understanding of shame and honor. This was huge to them. And so you, you, you did what brought you honor, and you never did what brought you shame. This was particularly true amongst the Pharisees and the scribes because shame and honor are especially important to hypocrites. And so Jesus, he would tell this story, and it would be bizarre. It would be unbelievable, incomprehensible. It would have been a ridiculous story of nonstop shame that nobody could understand. Everything that Jesus talks about here, it's counterintuitive to their culture, to their thinking. It goes against the grain of their society. The Pharisees would have been going, whoa, what is going on here? This is just way over the top because it's just shamefully shocking from start to finish. And so this is where we pick up the story in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So to start, we see that this story is not just about a son, right? It's about a man. It's about a father. He had two sons. There's three main characters in this story. And we'll look at each one of them throughout the rest of this series. And the younger son here, initially, he addresses his father with respect by saying, Father. But then he requests something so shameful that it would have shocked those that were listening. He says, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. Now, this is unthinkable on so many levels. It's out of rank. He's the younger son. There's an older brother who would have had more rights than him. It's completely selfish and totally disrespectful. He shouldn't expect to receive anything from the estate until after his father dies. It's like he's saying, Father, I wish you were dead. You're in the way. I want what's mine, and I want it now. I'm tired of waiting. He sees his father as getting in the way of what he wants. He doesn't want the father around. He wants the property. And this is obviously, it's a violation of the commandment to honor your father and your mother. Now, another thing that's important to see here is that he says, give me my share of the property. He doesn't use the word inheritance here. He says, give me the property. Give me the goods. He didn't want the responsibility of taking over the inheritance to build it, to develop it for the family and for the good of their future. He wants his money and he wants it now. He wants nothing to do with his father, nothing to do with his brother, nothing to do with the the village or the community ever again. He doesn't care how much everybody else is going to suffer for this. And everybody listening to this story would expect one thing. The father would raise his right hand and he would smack that kid as hard as he could right across the face. And then he would proceed to punish that kid as severely as he possibly could. Probably a public beating because the father had to protect his honor at all costs. But what does Jesus say the father did here? This shameful request leads to an even more startling response from the father. And he divided his property between them. What? I mean, this is unbelievable. Actually, the Greek word that's used here for property is bios. It means life. His life would have been tied up in his land, in his estate. And the younger son is asking his father to tear his life apart for him. And what does the father do? Rather than protect his honor and retaliate, for the love of his son, he he endures tremendous loss of honor. 
And he suffers the agony of his son's rejection. This would be absurd to those who are listening. The father acts in a shameful and humiliating way toward himself. They would think that this is a dishonorable, ridiculous father. First of all, no Jewish son would ever ask that, and no Jewish father would ever do that. The whole thing is an outrage. And on top of this, the Pharisees would be saying, well, well, where's the older brother here? It's the older brother's job to protect the honor of the father if he fails to do so. It's the older brother's job to protect his younger siblings from doing foolish things. Where is he? The older brother brother doesn't intervene. And so the estate is split. And the older brother, he gets two-thirds of the estate. And the younger brother here gets his one-third that was coming to him. In verse 13, it says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. How long did it take the younger son to take the money and run? How long? Not many days, right? Pretty quick. Not very long. He's driven by selfishness and pride, and there's no delay. It says that the younger son here, that he gathered everything together. In the Greek, what that simply means is he turned it into cash. Now, let me ask you, how do you take an estate that's been accumulating for probably generations, and how do you turn that into cash that fast? How do you liquidate that? You have to sell it at a what? At a discount. You have to sell it at a discount. And in Jewish culture, if you were to buy that, you couldn't actually take over that property until the father died. And so somebody was willing to buy a future at a big discount. But more importantly than that, the son would have had to peddle his inheritance to the people of his own village, his own community. He would have been scorned publicly. And he would have um, been, no doubt, just ostracized. He would have had to get out of town as quickly as he possibly could. And so he gets the cash and he turns the property over to some buyer who will take it over when his father dies. This is stupid. He's sacrificing his future on the altar of the immediate. And so it says that he goes on a journey into a far country or a distant country. And that was the whole point. He wanted to get as far away from home as he could, far away from his father, far away from his own people, his old life, away from any restraint, away from any scrutiny. Get out there where you can live exactly the way you want to live, and nobody who cares about you is going to know what you're doing. And in a shameful rebellion, he squanders his estate, it says, with reckless living. And this is where we get the word prodigal from. It's a term that means recklessly or freely extravagant. He scatters his future, and he has nothing to show for it. He spends everything on extravagant living. Now, later in the story... You know, the brother, older brother, he slanderously accuses him of spending all of his money on prostitutes. But the older brother, he really doesn't know. We really don't know because we're really not told how he spent all this money. But as a Middle Middle Eastern villager, we do know that um, generosity is a supreme virtue. So most likely he used it to spend money on large banquets or big parties or expensive gifts where he could win friends and he could gain status. He wanted to be the man. He wanted to be the one who had respect by others. And this would have provided a great deal of pleasure for him. Luke fifteen fourteen. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So we see that to this point, his circumstances are the result of his own foolishness. But now there's a famine. And that's obviously not his fault. That's just how life is. Life can be unpredictable. Now, what happens in a famine? 
You can read some crazy things about famines in ancient history. People eat garbage. They eat sandals. They eat stray animals. Actually, during famine times in Israel, when they were under siege, people would eat the afterbirth. This is life at the lowest level. It's life at the bottom. And he has cut himself off from the only form of social security available, his family, his community. He's lost a third of the family's wealth, and he's burned the bridge that actually returns home. And so he has no more rights to claim, and nobody's willing to take him in. And so to go home now would be to endure the scorn of his brother. He'd have to live off of his brother's inheritance. He would be indebted to his brother and his father. And then he would have the inevitable scorn of the entire community upon his return. And so what does he do? Verse 15. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He becomes a beggar. It says that he went and hired himself out. The Greek word that's used here is kalao, and it means to glue or to attach to. And that's what beggars do. If you've ever been to a third world country, you know how hard it is to get rid of beggars. They pull on your clothes and they put their hands in your pockets, especially the young ones. And that's what he does. He attaches himself. He finds a citizen of a far country, which was probably a wealthy Gentile. And he glues himself to that citizen. And the guy can't get rid of him. So what does he do? Bound by Middle Eastern custom and practice, he he would exercise hospitality. He offers him a job. He says, go out and feed the pigs in the field. But it's not really a legitimate job offer. You see, it's also a standard practice. If you wanted to get rid of somebody, you would give them a job that you know they would refuse. And so this obviously was a Jewish kid from a wealthy family. He shows up with money. He dresses like a Jew. He speaks like a Jew. There's no way this guy's going to accept a job feeding pigs, right? But he is so desperate. He's so hungry now that he accepts And so we see in verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. He's so desperate. He's so hungry. He's longing. Literally, he's lusting after these raw pods that he was throwing to the pigs. And if he could eat them, he would. But humans can't digest these and pigs can. And so the pigs were actually better off than he was. Their bellies were full and his was empty. And so clearly he tries begging, and nobody's giving him anything. And up to this point, he has not seriously considered going home until after he's tried every other alternative, and they've all come up empty, and they were found hopeless. Soon he's going to be too weak to make it home. He finally reaches the point where his will to survive overcomes the shame that he expects before his father and his brother and the village. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Ah, finally, he comes to himself. He decides to return home. Finally, this is a sign of true repentance, right? I mean, that's how it's been interpreted. For ages. But is he really repented? Has he really repented here? Is he really repenting? While in a far country, he he expressed no remorse, only a desire to eat. There's no indication that he's sorry for the deep pain that he's caused his father or the shame that he's caused his family. Or there's no regret over the money that he's lost. 
Again, Kenneth Bailey, he points out here that some Arabic versions of this text, they're translated, he got smart. He got smart. Basically, he thinks to himself, others uh, eat while I go hungry. I must do something. I got to do something about this. But there are no implications of real repentance here at this point. And the Pharisees, knowing the Torah and understanding the scriptures, they would have recognized the words here of his planned confession as the words that he addressed to Moses after the first nine plagues. And they know that he wasn't really repenting there. He was just wanting his own best interests. He he wanted to survive, and he was only concerned about serving himself. And so the son, knowing the public humiliation that awaits him upon his return, he has to assume the restoration to the family and to the community. It can only take place if he pays back what he lost. And so his plan here is to find a job. He, He wants to seek a job and compensate for his losses. And what we see here is sadly the prodigal at this point. He still doesn't understand the nature of his sin. He still thinks that the issue is the lost money, but it isn't. It's the father's broken heart. The problem is the father's broken heart. It's a broken relationship. It's not a broken law. If he's a servant, he can get a job and he can pay that money back. But if he's a son of the house... That's not going to satisfy his father. So in in the deepest sense here, he's really not longing to go home at this point. You see, because as a hired hand, he wouldn't live in the family home. He would live in a nearby village where all of the other craftsmen lived. You see, and he's not expecting to reconcile with his brother at this point. And that would have prevented fellowship with his father at the same time. He's hungry. He wants to eat. He wants to establish himself in a trade and he wants to earn a wage so that he can feed himself and pay his debts. He still doesn't get it. And so even as he's physically approaching the edge of his village, spiritually, he's still lost. He's still in a far country. In verse 20, we read, And he arose and he came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The young son never anticipated this. Nobody could have. This was radically unorthodox from every perspective. He would have expected to be accosted by people in the village, by the crowds when he entered. And when they found out that he had lost all the money, they would would begin this formal ceremony of ostracizing him from the community. And he would expect to have to sit outside of his father's house for a long time waiting for his angry father to come out so that he could grovel and so that he could plead for a job. But that's not what happens here. He sees his father, it says, sees him while he's a long way off. Before he even gets to the village, what does that tell us? His father was looking. His father was watching. His father was waiting, seeking after his lost son. And before anybody else can get to his son, his father, filled with compassion, runs. Literally, in the Greek, he races to him. And he grabs him around the neck. And he falls on top of him. And he kisses him again and again and again. It's an amazing, an amazing picture. The Pharisees would have been flabbergasted by this. It's undignified. No Jewish father would run through town like a child, picking up his robes and showing his bare legs. Half of the village would have chased after him, following him, wanting to just watch this spectacle as it unfolded. It's shameful 
It's humiliating. And in compassion, the father takes this humiliation and this shame that the son was expecting to get, and he takes it upon himself. And for the first time, the son would see and he would understand the intensity of his father's suffering. He would finally realize the enormity of his own sin and how he was the cause of that suffering. And he would know that without, without his father's visible demonstration of costly love, that there could be no reconciliation. And how does he respond to this? In, in verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he stops, stunned beyond belief. He changes his mind and he changes his speech. He realizes that there is nothing that he can do to heal this relationship. He can only put himself at the Father's mercy and say, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And rather than insisting on control over his own life, he finally surrenders completely to his Father's will. He leaves his destiny in his Father's hands. And being overwhelmed by the unexpected outpouring of the Father's love. These words that were originally composed to manipulate are now transformed into words of genuine repentance. And realizing there's nothing that he can do to make up for what he's done. He knows that proposing now to be a servant, it would be blasphemous. It would be pointless. And so he changes his mind and he just accepts being found. Like we saw with the lost sheep and the lost coin. True repentance is accepting being found. In verse 22... He said, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Evangelium in evangelio, the gospel within the gospel. I find it interesting that Islam continues to read this parable as a story about a boy who is saved without a savior. They see Jesus as being a good Muslim here, reflecting a Muslim or Islamic theology. The boy, he comes to his senses. He returns home, and the father forgives him. But there is no incarnation. There's no cross. There's no suffering. There's no atonement. There's no savior. But it's not so. It's all here in this story. We see what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5.19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. The suffering of the cross here is seen in the agony of the Father's rejection. He could have severed the relationship and gradually let his heart heal, gradually begin to forget the pain, but instead he endures the agony thereby making reconciliation possible. The father in his house representing God, he leaves his house and he humiliates himself on the road. And this represents God incarnate in Christ. He doesn't wait for the prodigal to come home, but at a great cost, he goes down and he goes out to find and to revive and resurrect the one who is lost and the one who is dead. And having found him, he takes the prodigal's shame and humiliation upon himself. And he restores him to sonship before the entire village. And he clothes him with the father's most elegant wardrobe. 
representing the righteousness that Christ credits to us. And he gives him the family ring, making him the official representative of the family to the world. Amazing, extravagant love. It's incredible. You see, all of us have had some experience in a far country, far away from home, far away from the Father's presence. Maybe you're there now, even. Maybe you know what it's like to run away, taking the Father's goods and and, and running from Him, trying to make it on your own. And you found yourself doing things and living like you never thought possible. You wonder what it would be like to truly come home and to be found by a God who is constantly watching and waiting and looking for and seeking after you. Jesus, He shows us the way here. You need to see that He has suffered for our sake because of our sin. He made a way for our reconciliation. There's no plan that we can come up with. There's nothing that we can do to earn His love and acceptance. All we can do is come home to Him, placing ourselves at His mercy, knowing that we are not worthy to be called His son or His daughter. And like the prodigal, in amazement, we just accept His extravagant love and we experience the sonship that we were always meant to enjoy. You see, because there's nothing that brings more joy to God than for His lost children to be found, for them to truly come home. And that's why we come to communion every week. It's a visible demonstration of exactly how God did this for us. So I want to invite the band to come up at this point. And when we take that cracker and we break it, we remember Jesus' body that was broken for us. And when we dip it in the wine or the grape juice, we remember His blood that was shed for us. And so as we do that, we come to a time where we respond to God in worship. We worship Him through the songs that we sing, and we praise Him for all of the good things that He's done for us. We worship Him by our giving, by our tithes and offerings. And so you can give and you can place those in the offering boxes on the sidewall or in the back. We worship God through prayer. And if you feel like you're far away from God and you want to return home today, there will be deacons and elders in the back. Go back and pray with them. And we worship God through encouraging one another. And that's why we put food in the back and snacks in the back so that you can spend time encouraging one another and considering one another. And we celebrate and we worship a God who has been extravagantly gracious and loving to us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your extravagant love. Lord, we don't fully comprehend it. So many times our hearts are just hardened. Father, we want to do life on our own apart from your rule and your reign and your protection. And we find ourselves in places oftentimes, Lord, where we thought we would never be. All of us know what it's like, Lord, to be far away. I pray, Father, that you would remind us what it means to come home to be found and to enjoy the sonship you have called us to.
Father, you're so good to us. We, we just thank you for your grace and your mercy. Help us to understand the riches of your goodness. And that our lives would be different because of it. That we would then be able to live for your glory and for your joy. Out of gratitude. We ask these things in Jesus' name.